seen, the first three chapters of Genesis have reverberations throughout the Bible. God's acts of creation foreshadow His acts of new creation. God's resting on the seventh day foreshadows His enjoyment of eternal Sabbath rest with His people. The creation of humanity as God's image foreshadows the offices of king and priest among His people. And Adam and Eve's marriage foreshadows the marriage relationship between God and His people, even particularly as it is embodied between the Messiah and the church. The tragic rebellion of his vice-regents in chapter 3 contained an explicit promise of the future remedy to come in the defeat of the devil through the death of a future male descendant of the woman, the Messiah, who would come as a final climactic last Adam. Last week we saw how the theme of offspring gets developed in Genesis and beyond, particularly how offspring sometimes refers to plural descendants and sometimes refers to a single male descendant. One of the questions that the Bible raises and addresses for us later is how did the rebellion of Adam and Eve impact their descendants? As we noted last week, whether a particular individual was offspring of the serpent or offspring of the woman Everyone was a sinner. The Apostle Paul unpacks this connection for us, though he doesn't tell us everything we might like to know. Once again, we seek to understand how Paul reads Genesis. Adam, as his name conveys, also represents humanity. Also, if he is depicted as a royal figure and a priestly figure, we have multiple reasons to view him as representing more than him and Eve. This is where we have to come to terms with a concept that is generally at home in the ancient Near Eastern thinking, as well as Eastern thinking today, but that has been shoved to the background in modern Western thinking. The concept has been variously labeled. We might call it corporate responsibility or the principle of the one and the many. Author Chris Bronze wrote a book entitled Bound Together, in which he described it in terms of being roped together. Bronze summarizes with reference to Adam and Eve specifically, as is always the case with royalty, the choices that Adam and Eve made had consequences, not only for themselves, but for their entire kingdom, their descendants, and the land they had been given to rule. Making the connection with Moses' emphasis on the shame of Adam and Eve, resulting from their eyes being opened, biblical counselor Ed Welch writes, We experience shame because we have ancestors who did something shameful and we are connected to them. We didn't have to do anything to be contaminated by the family traditions. We just had to be born. You can feel shame because you are linked to a shameful family line. It is as if your last name is the same as that of the person who ruined the kingdom. And you can't escape that connection. The Apostle Paul unpacks some of this in Romans 5, 12 to 21. In this complicated passage, his objective is actually quite simple. He wants to show how Adam's disobedience impacted humanity after him, and to contrast that with how Jesus' obedience impacted the new humanity. Along the way, he wants to show not only how Jesus had the greater impact, but also how Jesus' work overcame the negative impact of Adam's failure. This passage has been at the center of controversy throughout church history, Concepts of original sin, inherited guilt, and imputation are relevant to the discussion. However, our goal this morning is somewhat more modest than arbitrating these great debates. Rather, we want to focus on what Paul apparently sees in Genesis. Rather, in in this specific passage, Paul identifies Adam as a type of Christ, a template set for who the Messiah would be and what he would do. We need to understand what Paul wants us to see here in order for us to have a good grasp of the meaning and significance of the first three chapters of Genesis. Even as we've already spent a good deal of time and energy looking at the details of those chapters, we haven't plumbed the depths. Paul will help us. But Paul's focus is actually going to be on the results of Adam's disobedience. And that means he's drawing some conclusions not merely from Genesis 3 itself, but he's noticing the way things unfolded after Genesis 3. Paul recognizes Adam's royal role from Genesis 1, 
and how that changes after Genesis 3. Paul recognizes Adam's priestly role from Genesis 2 and how that changes after Genesis 3. We observed in our study of Genesis 3 itself that Moses doesn't draw attention explicitly to Adam's guilt. Instead, the divine judge's uh, address to them focuses on their shame, the couple's shame. God's punishments make it clear that Adam and Eve are guilty. They have disobeyed. Adam, in particular, has failed to exercise his royal prerogative in ruling over and subduing the serpent. And he obeyed his wife, who was obeying the serpent, so that both Adam and Eve ate fruit from the knowing good and evil tree, which God had explicitly commanded them not to eat. If Adam was a priest charged with serving and protecting sacred space in the garden in chapter 2, then shouldn't we expect his rebellion to impact his descendants? One text in the Mosaic Law may explicitly lead us to see this. In Leviticus 4, the Lord lays out the procedures for the sin offering, also known as the purification offering. And there are special procedures detailed for the priest who sins. So that, in verse 3, we read, If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to Yahweh for a sin offering. Priest and people are bound together in such a way that his sin brings guilt on all the people. And he, therefore, must offer the bull for a sin offering, the largest and most expensive animal sacrifice, which was only otherwise prescribed when the whole nation was guilty of some corporate sin. Likewise, if Adam was a king, responsible to subdue and rule over the rest of creation, then we can expect that his sin impacts his kingdom. As when King David conducted his sinful census, the whole nation was punished. The challenge to considering both of these as valid parallels is primarily the fact that with Adam, we're talking about his sin's impact on future generations, whereas the priest and the king's sin had immediate impact on the generation then living. So, we must turn to Paul and his manner of addressing this question to see the ways he does and doesn't connect future generations to Adam. And, of course, his point is going to pivot to showing how believers are connected to Jesus. And there's something parallel between the two. This morning, I'm not going to walk through the passage verse by verse. Some of you may recall that I taught through this portion of Romans in our Wednesday night Bible study version of ABF. And we spent several weeks on this passage. If you want more in-depth discussion, you can find those videos online on our YouTube page. Up to this point in Romans... From chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul had focused on sin and death as he highlights God's judgment against idolatrous, unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. Then from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 11, he emphasized God's remedy through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which provided justification and eternal life for believing Jews and Gentiles. So in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, Paul returns to Genesis to set side by side the results of Adam's rebellion and the results of Jesus' redemptive obedience. One more introductory word. It's important to recognize that Paul utilizes the rhetorical device of personification heavily in this section. Pretty much everything in this passage has to do with the idea of reigning. And that is driven by his reading of Genesis. He depicts death as a king and sin as a queen, ruling together over this world. He carries on these personifications pretty consistently through chapter 8. Paul rightly recognizes the royal nature of humanity as reflected in Genesis 1, 26-28. They've been commissioned to exercise dominion over the rest of creation, to subdue and rule over the earth, and they've been blessed and commanded to be fruitful and multiply. But Paul also recognizes that something happens to their reign in chapter 3. When we looked at the narrative of Adam and Eve's rebellion in Genesis 3, 1 to 7, I drew attention to the point at which their nature apparently changed. And I believe Paul also sees this as a turning point. When they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. In this moment, 
everything changed. As I suggested a few weeks ago, I believe their nature changed from raw human nature as God created it to wretched human nature. Or, drawing from God's words in Genesis 2, when they ate the fruit, they died. Paul sees this moment as the beginning of the reign of sin and death over humanity, Adam and Eve and all their descendants. With that understanding in place, let's read the whole passage, and then we'll draw out some of the most crucial aspects. Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though Paul doesn't mention Eve, we need to remember her presence as the backdrop for what Paul seems to be doing here. What we're going to see is that Paul recognizes Adam and Eve as the created king and queen over earth, God's vice-regents over creation. But then Paul observes their replacement by a new king and queen, which we'll get to in just a bit. So just as Moses leaves Adam in the background of the narrative of the rebellion, Paul leaves Eve in the background of his discussion, probably because he recognizes in the larger context of Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that Adam represents his wife. Adam carries the greater responsibility, and Adam could have remedied Eve's submission to the serpent, but didn't. Instead, he submitted to Eve, who submitted to the serpent. Ultimately, Paul boils down all of history to a contrast between the actions of one man in the Garden of Eden and one man who came from heaven. But we have to consider what happens in between. If Adam and Eve were installed as the proper king and queen of earth, should they have been submitting to one of their subjects? No. This is part of their rebellion. In doing so, they essentially abdicated their God-given thrones... They relinquished their rightful authority over this world. But it won't be the serpent who takes over, who begins ruling over the world. Paul will draw attention to two usurpers, which we'll come to in a moment. But Jesus, in his teaching, points to a third figure, one who who Paul chooses to leave again in the background, in the shadows. That's because Moses leaves him in the background and in the shadows. But in John's Gospel, Jesus refers three times to Satan as the ruler of this world. Thus, when we combine Satan, sin, and death, we recognize a false trinity. But more in line with the picture Genesis paints, we have the spiritual power Satan standing in for God, the Creator. And we have death standing in for Adam, the King. And we have sin standing in for Eve, the Queen. 
Thus, as Adam and Eve were to be God's vice-regents over creation, so now Satan has his vice-regents over the world, sin and death. In order to see this clearly, we need to look at the results of Adam's sin, according to Paul in Romans 5. First, a quick word about the terms Paul uses to characterize what Adam did. In verse 14, he refers to Adam's transgression. This is to cross over a boundary or to break the terms of a relationship. Paul probably uses this term here as a reflection of Hosea 6-7, recognizing Adam's transgressing of the covenant initiated with him by God in creation. In verse 15, and several times more, Paul uses the word translated trespass in the ESV. Some other versions use the term offense. This Greek word could be translated as fall. Now, a little Greek could be helpful here. We'll use English letters so you can see more clearly what's going on. So this will be up on the screen for you. The word Paul uses here is paraptoma. Para is a preposition that usually indicates proximity, nearness, being beside something, or coming from something close by. Ptoma is a noun that occurs in the New Testament only referring to corpses, dead bodies. But outside the New Testament, it is used to refer to anything that has fallen down, like a collapsed building after an earthquake. But it comes from the verb pipto, which means I fall down. So a ptoma is someone who has fallen down, dead, hence a corpse. So when we put the word together, paraptoma, it paints a picture of falling down beside something. Paul probably envisioned something like Adam walking along the path of righteousness, and then he fell off the path. And he may even imply that he fell over dead. The English word trespass completely misses the point and paints a different picture in our minds, as though it were a mere synonym of transgression. Paul also refers to what Adam did as sin, as in, is in verse 16. This is the common word for sin that means to miss a target. I like to use the word failure to capture the idea. Finally, in verse 19, Paul crystallizes what he sees clearly in Genesis. Adam's act was disobedience. He plainly and rebelliously disobeyed the command Yahweh had clearly communicated to him, particularly the prohibition against eating the fruit from the knowing good and evil tree. But he also disobeyed the command to rule over and subdue the beasts of the field. As the divine judge's indictment pronounced in Genesis 3, Adam obeyed the voice of his wife as she directed him to join her in obeying the voice of the serpent. Transgression, fall, failure, disobedience. This is what Paul sees Adam doing in Genesis 3. What were the lasting results? Paul uniquely focuses on the results of actions, the consequences of actions in this passage. In verse 15, Paul says, Many died through one man's trespass. Adam sinned, and many died. Already, Paul is introducing the rope-together principle. The Lord had indicated to Adam ahead of time that when he ate the forbidden fruit, he would surely die. Paul recognizes that it wasn't just Adam and Eve who died. When their eyes were opened as an immediate result of eating the forbidden fruit, the two of them died, and, Paul says, many others died as well. But they were the only two people on the planet at the time. So how could many die who weren't actually alive at the time? If Paul sees Adam as a royal priest, then he may very well see Adam as representing all of his descendants in his actions there in the garden. Thus, the many who died must be all of Adam's descendants. But they're not even alive yet. Perhaps we should see here Paul indicating that Adam's descendants will all come into this world spiritually dead. But let's hold off on that conclusion until we've considered everything else, Paul says. In verse 16, Paul says that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. What we want to know most of all is, to what does condemnation refer? Well, first, I'd like to point out that this is the same word Paul will use in the wondrously encouraging Romans 8.1. Outside of this passage, Romans 8.1 is the only place Paul uses this word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that which God's judgment 
established in response to Adam's sin is what is eliminated for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5 tells us how condemnation became our problem. Romans 6 will tell us how the problem was solved. And Romans 8.1 will explicitly state that the problem has been solved and then develop what the Christian life looks like because condemnation has been removed. Paul speaks of the judgment that followed Adam's fall, his trespass. That must refer to God's announcement of curses on the serpent and the ground, as well as the punishments of Adam and Eve, which extend to their descendants. It's not merely Eve who will experience pain in child-rearing, including having her God-designed desire for offspring frustrated by unwilling and domineering husbands. It's all women to one degree or another. It's not merely Adam who will experience pain and frustration in laboring for food. It's all of his descendants. It's not merely Adam and Eve who will experience conflict with the offspring of the serpent and then return to the dust in physical death. All of humanity will be caught up in this conflict and all humanity will die physically. Based on how Paul develops his argument, I'd suggest that he particularly has in view the last aspect. The condemnation that resulted from God's judgment that followed Adam's sin is physical death. This is the condemnation that the Messiah frees those who are in him from, according to Romans 8.1. Back in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul next says that death reigned through that one man because of the fall, the trespass of that one man. We'll come back to the reign of King Death in our next point, but we must see that Paul attributes the cause of King Death's reign to Adam's fall. Why does King Death sit on the throne? Because King Adam fell off his throne. Finally, in verses 18 and 19, he clarifies verse 16. In verse 16, he hadn't specified who was condemned because of Adam's sin. In verse 18, he says, and I'm following the translation provided in the ESV footnotes here, the trespass of one led to condemnation for all men. Why do all people live under God's condemnation? Because of Adam's fall. But Paul explains further in verse 19, and this adds some complexity to our understanding here. He says, By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, there's a sequence here, perhaps. Adam disobeyed, and his disobedience had an impact on the many. Again, there aren't many alive when Adam disobeyed. So Paul has to be speaking of people who would be born later on. His and Eve's descendants. Now, if we hold verses 18 and 19 together properly, we can see the relationship between the phrases all men and the many. We'll see in a moment why he shifts to the many in verse 19. It has to do with the other side of the contrast and the Old Testament background he sees as relevant to the Messiah's work here. But whether all or many, and whether there is any difference between those two terms as to what people they're referring to, Paul is definitely referring to an impact on people who were not yet born. Adam's disobedience resulted in the many being made sinners. The word translated made could also be translated constituted. It has to do with a change of status or a change of nature. I believe Paul sees what we've already pointed to in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve's eyes were open, their nature changed. And if their nature changed, then when they produce offspring we should assume that their offspring would inherit their nature. Thus, if Paul sees that the many offspring of Adam and Eve are now sinners, how did they become sinners? Adam and Eve became sinners when they sinned, when their eyes were opened. Forever afterward, their children and their children's children on throughout human history would be conceived as sinners. Sinners can only produce sinners. Even if Adam and Eve themselves experience redemption, which I think is highly likely, their redeemed nature is not transmitted through physical conception. Now, as we swing back to the first verse of the passage, we need to take a closer look at how Paul personifies death and sin as these ruling powers, king and queen, if you will. Paul pictures them as the usurpers. Back in verse 12, Paul begins the passage Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice the dash at the end. It's indicating that Paul seems to break off his thoughts. And indeed, verses 13 and 14 address a couple of side issues Paul thinks might be raised in his readers' minds at this point, and he wants to head off these potential problems. Now, I'm referring to death as king, particularly because in Greek, the noun's grammatical gender is masculine. And I'm referring to sin as queen, particularly because in Greek, the noun's grammatical gender is feminine. I think it's possible that Paul combines them this way as vice-regents, king and queen, to mimic Adam as king and Eve as queen. Maybe I'm overplaying that, but it makes a lot of sense as the passage progresses. It's important also to to recognize that Paul didn't invent this personification. He learned it from Moses. How does Paul see the idea of sin and death as ruling in Genesis, particularly as a result of Adam's original sin? Well, he keeps on reading Genesis. In chapter 4, the Lord addresses an enraged Cain who hasn't yet murdered Abel, but is probably thinking about it already. In Genesis 4, 7, the Lord says to Cain, And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We discussed the ESV's translation switch in recent years to contrary to from the simple its desire is for you a couple of weeks ago. Um, The switch is certainly unnecessary in my view. The point for our purposes today is simply to observe that the Lord characterizes sin as an active, independent agent, probably symbolizing sin as a wild animal seeking to hunt down and devour Cain. The Lord graciously warns Cain that he is in grave danger, and he presses Cain on his responsibility to rule over this wild animal. Note the ruling language here. Sin, depicted as a vicious animal, has an instinctual desire for Cain. That is, wild animal sin instinctually wants to pounce on Cain and devour him. The Lord commands Cain to resist, fight back, and overcome What's the reality depicted here? Cain must resist the temptation to sin by expressing his anger in the form of violent murder. The connection between Cain's anger in his heart and the act of murder sounds like something Jesus once said. In any case, Paul recognizes sin's power here and shifts the image from wild animal to ruling power. Not uncommon in the Bible. The image sin reigns means that sin shapes everyone's choices. What about death as a ruling power? Well, I think Paul takes his initial cue from God's judgment, where he indicates that humans are going to return to the dust in physical death. Then he probably notices the connection between the power of sin and death in chapter 4. Cain doesn't rule over wild animal sin. Instead, he yields and is devoured, which means he murders Abel. Thus, the first physical death in human history is the death of one man caused by another man's sin. Then Paul reads the message of the genealogy in Genesis 5, which has a repeated refrain of, and he died, referring to each member of that genealogy. Death is clearly dominating human history. The image death reigns means that death dominates everyone's destiny. In other words, every human dies. Of course, there's one famous exception in the genealogy, which probably is meant to communicate that there is a power greater than sin and death, so that escape from king death is possible, though rare. More on that in a few weeks. Back in Romans 5, it's not quite right to think of sin and death as foreign invaders here. Since they are described as coming in through one man, through Adam... As one writer observes, they should be considered domestic innovations and forces wrongfully set loose by the rightfully appointed king. Queen sin's entry into the world comes first. This is because Adam's sinning came first. Then King Death makes his grand entrance. And then Paul says, death spread to all men, all people, all humanity. The last phrase of verse 12 continues to be debated. While one commentator has sketched out 11 distinct interpretations of the final phrase that have been held throughout church history, two are dominant, 
The one reflected in all of our English translations is that King Death spread his rule over all humanity because all sinned. And this is, of course, true. Everyone dies because everyone sins. Yep, that checks out. However, there is another view that I believe fits better with the grammar, and it makes a different point, but an equally true point taught in other places in Scripture. And I think it fits better with Genesis as well. The phrase translated because is often translated elsewhere as so that or something similar. In fact, one commentator summarizes the lay of the land this way. Because is unlikely despite its current popularity since a causal meaning for the phrase is rare before the 10th century if it is present at all. Now, I shared this perspective back in 2020 and I have reconsidered it but remain convinced it fits best. But I could be wrong. Paul could be here saying, death spread to all people, so that all sin. Why do all people sin? Because they're dead. I believe this is true and taught elsewhere in Scripture, in Paul's letters in particular, even if that's not what Paul is saying in this particular verse. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they died spiritually, immediately. Now, what's interesting, as we read Genesis 3 is that if God hadn't exiled them from the garden, Adam and Eve could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever in their state of death. Thus, even though, even though they had, di- had already spiritually died, when their eyes were opened as a result of eating the forbidden fruit in disobedience to God, it was possible for them to still avoid physical death. God exiled them from the garden, however, so that they would inevitably experience physical death as well. They would return to the dust as punishment for their sin. But spiritual death comes first and becomes the context in which all of their descendants would come into this world. So we can say that we sin because we're spiritually dead and we physically die because we sin. The reign of King Death is absolute, all-encompassing at the front end and the back end. Death's reign is on display for Paul in the book of Genesis as everyone between Adam and Moses died, except Enoch, who again shows that God can overrule King Death. In verses 13 and 14, Paul's digression shows how interlocked the reign of King Death and Queen Sin is. They rule together. By pointing this out, Paul shows that sin is a much larger category than transgression the specific breaking of a divine command. Paul observes how the genealogy of Genesis 5 repeatedly points to men's deaths. And then, of course, God's judgment flood in Genesis 6 to 9 brings death to every human being on the planet, except for eight. Yes, death reigned. But, of course, its reign was under the sovereignty of God. Paul repeats this point in verse 17. King death reigned through Adam because of Adam's fall. Adam fell off the throne and King death took his place. Don't miss the metaphorical point through the personification. Why do all people die? Because Adam rebelled against God. Here, Paul doesn't only point to the fact that people die physically as a punishment for their their individual sins, but we see their interconnection. You can't have one without the other. In verse 21, where Paul adds, sin reigned in death. Queen sin reigned in king death. What does that mean? Well, if Paul is working with the imagery of a king and a queen's royal domain, then he means queen sin reigns in the realm of king death. Thus, death is primary. Queen Sin's reign is seen as people in her kingdom actually sin, actually fail. And people do this because they are living in King Death's kingdom. Sin's domain is Death's domain. They work in tandem, but Death as king dominates at the front end and at the back end. Paul's portrayal in chapter 5 should color how we read the famous verse at the end of chapter 6. The first part of Romans 6.23 famously says, For the wages of sin is death. Paul is still personifying both sin and death as ruling powers. So we should read him as depicting queen sin 
as paying wages to her slaves. Throughout Romans 6, Paul has portrayed us as formerly enslaved to Queen Sin. How does she pay her slaves? They get to have a private meeting with the king. What a privilege. Live a life of servitude where all of your thoughts, feelings, and deeds are characterized as sinful. And at the end of your time of service, you get escorted in to meet King Death face to face. You've lived in his realm all your life. Now you get to meet him. And that will mean your personal doom. As the Lord said in Genesis 3, you will return to the dust. The reign of King Death and Queen Sin has been universal and devastating. Paul adds one more element to make things even worse. In verse 20, Paul probably addresses a Jewish assumption about the Mosaic law. He writes, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Jews might assume that God gave the law to provide a remedy to enable his people to resist the reign of Queen Sin. The law even promises life to those who obey, which they could view as seeking to rebel against the reign of King Death. But Paul suggests that God had a different purpose for the Mosaic Law. He uses an interesting word translated here as came in, but it more precisely refers to something coming in as a side issue. It can have a negative connotation, as in referring to sneaky false teachers who slip into churches maliciously seeking to deceive. I don't think Paul has that negative connotation here, however. Instead, he simply relegates the Mosaic Law to a side issue. It's not the remedy God would provide to overturn the co-regency of King Death and Queen Sin. Instead, Paul says that the Mosaic Law came in to increase the trespass or to multiply the impact of the fall. Now, don't forget the personification when you read the next phrase, where queen sin increased. Thus, as the Mosaic law multiplied the impact of the fall, queen sin increases her domination, increases her influence. In Romans 7, Paul will indicate that queen sin essentially co-ops the Mosaic law, using God's good law as a weapon to stimulate sinful people's sinful passions in order to bear fruit, for king death. Also notice the word where. This is very precisely a place reference. So where is it that Queen Sin increased her influence? Where does the Mosaic law come? In Israel. Paul recognizes the history of Israel as the history of Queen Sin's reign. It is most profoundly on display among the people to whom God revealed his word. Queen Sin's reign comes to a head in Israel when the Jewish people, custodians of God's law, rejected their Messiah and murdered him. But therein lay the good news. Are you ready for some good news? When we look at Adam and the impact of his rebellion in the garden, it's universal bad news. Bad news for everybody. As we begin to look at the last Adam's work and its results, we see some very good news. The Messiah brings in a new regime that overturns the co-regency of King Death and Queen Sin. Surprisingly, Paul doesn't point directly to the Messiah as the new king. Instead, he continues his personifications by referring to Queen Grace. And surprisingly, her co-ruler is plural, the receivers. The two other uses of the word reign occur in verses 17 and 21. In verse 21 we find grace reigning through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 17, we see that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Notice the structural parallel. King death reigned through the one man, Adam. The receivers reign through the one man, Jesus. So how did this new regime come into being? And how does it compare with the former regime of King Death and Queen Sin? The new regime far surpasses the old one. Paul uses the language of abounding and phrases like much more and all the more. So while Paul personifies grace in verse 21 as a ruling queen, 
He makes it clear earlier in the passage that it's one man's grace that makes all the difference. The grace of that one man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what did he do? And what are the glorious results? Verse 15, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Literally, there's a definite article before the word many. The many. That's important for later. So Jesus extends grace, God's grace in particular, to the many in the form of a particular free gift. I like to define grace as God's power at work for good in the lives of people who only deserve bad. In this verse, His grace shows up in the form of something God gives to the many. He doesn't specify what God gives yet. He leaves us in suspense momentarily. In verse 16, then, we read, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Okay, so there's something different about the impact of Adam's sin on his descendants than the gift God gives as a result of the last Adam's work. He explains, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Adam's singular fall resulted in condemnation, death for all his descendants, all those related to him, all those he represented as royal priest. Those sinners living under God's condemnation imitated Adam's fall with their own trespasses, their own falls. Paul switches to a different Greek word translated free gift here, a word that is specifically related to the word translated grace. Thus, this is an outworking of God's grace. And the result of God's grace in this case is the opposite of condemnation. God's grace supplies a different verdict, a verdict of righteous justification. Now, we have to recall that Paul spent chapter 4 unpacking the concept of justification, emphasizing how sinners receive the verdict by trusting in Jesus. This is reflected here in verse 17. It is those who receive the abundance of grace, those who receive the free gift of righteousness, who reign through Jesus. Thus, it is those who are justified by faith who reign in life. Those who trust in Jesus receive not only not only a new status of righteous, they also receive eternal life. It's as though trusting in Jesus is equivalent to eating from the tree of life. As we'll see in a moment, this reigning in life probably isn't just for the future. The reigning begins when life begins. In verse 18, Paul gets to his main point, his clearest expression of what he's seeking to communicate. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Sandwiched between verse 17 and verse 19, the all who receive justification and life are qualified by those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness in verse 17 and qualified by the many who are made righteous in verse 19. But in verse 18, Paul zeroes in on Jesus' act of righteousness. Now, this Greek word is exactly the same as the word translated justification in verse 16. Jesus' justification provides believers' justification. Jesus' justification may refer to his vindication. That is to say, Paul may hint here at Jesus' resurrection, which will become a major feature in his discussion of chapter 6. And Paul has already connected believers' justification with Jesus' resurrection. Back in Romans 4.25, Paul describes Jesus as the one who was delivered up for our trespasses, our falls, and raised for our justification. Alternatively, another way to view this, Paul characterizes Jesus' death as his righteous act that secured our justification, which would point back to chapter 3 where he connects our justification with God putting Jesus forward as propitiation by his blood. Or one other view is common. Paul here refers to Jesus' entire life of righteousness, his perfect obedience to God, which provides the actual righteousness that righteously grounds God's righteous verdict. In classic theological terms, God imputes 
Jesus' righteousness to believers. Any of these three views works well with Paul's language in Romans 5.18. Verse 19 specifically refers to Jesus' obedience, which again might be limited to his obedience in dying on the cross, or it might refer to his entire life of obedience. I remain unsure whether Paul intends one or the other or both. The key line of verse 19 says, By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The reference to the many is almost certainly drawn from Isaiah 53, 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Paul is viewing justification from a different angle than he presented in Romans 4. In Romans 4, he focused on a sinner's faith as the instrumental cause of justification. We receive the verdict of righteous from the divine judge by believing in Jesus. But in Romans 5, Paul indicates that Jesus' obedience causes our justification. It is only because of Jesus' obedience that sinners can believe in him and receive a verdict different than the condemnation we deserve because of Adam's disobedience and our disobedience. In the first part of verse 19, Adam's disobedience in the garden constituted the many people he represented, which is all of his descendants, all of humanity, as sinners. Jesus' obedience, however, constituted the many people he represented by his obedience and by his death on the cross, which is all those who receive the gift of righteousness by God's grace. Jesus' obedience constitutes his followers as righteous. Jesus' obedience constitutes his followers as righteous. We really are righteous. As Adam's disobedience actually determined that his descendants' nature would be sinful, they'd sin because they were sinners. So Jesus' obedience actually determines that his offspring, to borrow the language of Isaiah 53, 11, would have a righteous nature. They'd pursue righteousness because they'd been counted righteous. Paul will develop this more in chapter 6. Also, in chapter 6, he'll make it clear that the reason sinners live out this righteousness is because they have been set free from the dominion of queen sin. They've been set free from slavery to her tyrannical rule. And this has happened to them because they've been bound together with Jesus, united to him by faith, which is expressed and illustrated by water baptism, which we're about to get to witness here in just a few minutes this morning. And that is your cue if you're getting in the tank to go get ready. (laughs) Those who receive the grace Jesus offers, those who receive the gift of righteousness by trusting Jesus, reign in life. Paul personifies this also as the reign of Queen Grace. And in verse 20, he depicts the reign of Queen Grace as far surpassing the reign of Queen Sin. Queen Sin had multiplied the impact of her reign in Israel, in particular, utilizing the special tool of God's law to make sin become sinful beyond measure. There, in Israel, also, grace superabounded. Though idolatry and wickedness and evil characterized Israel, particularly in their rejection and murder of the Messiah, that very terrible act of sinfulness resulted in all the grace of redemption extended to both Jews and all nations through the gospel. The proto-evangelium has been fulfilled. The Messiah has won the victory over the enemies, Satan, sin, and death. He has conquered by his victorious death and resurrection. The last Adam has undone and overcome the failure, the fall, the rebellion of the first Adam. In the place of condemnation, there is justification. In the place of death, there is eternal life. In the place of sin, there is righteousness. This is, after all, what the reign of grace looks like. Notice in verse 21 that grace reigns through righteousness. What does this mean on the ground in real life? The metaphor of grace reigning means that God's grace governs every Christian's growth. God's grace governs every Christian's growth. 
In other words, though we still do nothing to earn it or deserve it, God exercises His power to bring ultimate good into our lives, particularly in the form of conforming us to the image of His righteous Son. Thus, we who receive the gift of righteousness, the gift of a righteous status, also receive God's transformative grace, which enables us to live out the righteousness of God in obedience to His commands. We receive both the status and the lived-out righteousness through faith. Paul will use the term reign again in chapter 6, verse 12, where he, uses an, he issues an interesting indirect imperative. Our English versions typically have something like the ESV. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. As Paul is continuing his personification of Queen Sin here, and as this is a third-person imperative in Greek, we should recognize Paul is saying, Queen Sin must not reign in your mortal body to make you obey her desires, to make you do what she wants you to do. Formerly, before you were in Christ, she was able to make you obey her desires. But because this is an indirect imperative... We have a responsibility in this, which he clarifies in verse 13. And do not offer any parts of your body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. Queen Sin wants to recruit you and your parts for her army to accomplish her unrighteous purposes. But she no longer has power over you. She no longer has a claim on you or your parts. You must refuse when she comes knocking. In verse 14, Paul gives the glorious gospel promise that is an implication of the reign of Queen Grace over us. The guarantee that flows out of the truth that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Christian, you live under Queen Grace now. And Queen Sin will not exercise dominion over you I know sometimes it feels like she still has power over your life. I know sometimes it feels like all we do is give in to Queen Sin's demands. And we do. We do still give in to Queen Sin's demands. We at times offer parts of ourselves to her. But there's a guarantee here, a certain promise that she will not have the last word. No, The divine judge's verdict over your life cannot be appealed, questioned, or overturned. When you trust in Jesus, God counts you righteous, and the Holy Spirit begins to enable you to actually produce righteousness in your life. And someday you will be fully righteous, fully conformed to the image of the last Adam, the righteous one, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the end... One man's grace overturns the long-lasting impact of one man's fall. The reign of King Death and Queen Sin, co-regents of Satan and his rule over this world, has been broken. The usurpers have been dethroned. And Jesus did it by using their weapons against them, triumphing over them by dying on a Roman cross. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. Peter says. Whereas Moses portrayed sin as a wild animal in Genesis 4, Paul, borrowing from the prophet Hosea, portrays death as a wild animal with a stinger in 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul says the sting of death is sin, he envisions death as something like a scorpion with a venomous stinger. Thus death uses sin to kill. Jesus removed the stinger. You know how some bees die when they sting you? They embed their stinger in your skin and the bee ruptures internally and dies. Well, it's like that. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. Death embedded its stinger into Jesus on the cross. Yes, Jesus died. But so did death. And death can no longer embed its stinger into those who are united to Jesus in His death. His death was our death. 
We died with him. We were crucified with him. And as Paul elaborates in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was the last Adam, the second man, the man from heaven, who didn't merely defeat death by taking its stinger. He also brought about resurrection. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Then, as in Romans 5, Paul qualifies the all who will be made alive in the next verse as those who belong to Christ. Though death's stinger has been removed, Paul indicates that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Though King Death's reign has been overthrown, his queen having been routed, God has yet to eliminate him from creation entirely. Indeed, only after Satan himself has been thrown into the lake of fire at the final judgment, when the souls of unbelievers will be raised to be sent to their final destination, we read in Revelation 20:14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Then, and only then, will we be able to, with complete joy, sing the words of the taunt song, of 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In the meantime, we walk by faith. We seek to grow in grace, and we wait for what we hope for with patience. Would you pray with me? Father, we... Thank you for the truths that you have shown us in Scripture about the defeat of death and sin. If we were to judge by our own experience, if we were to judge by our own feelings, if we were to judge by what our eyes see, we would never come to the conclusion that sin and death have been utterly defeated. So thank you for revealing that to us. It's a truth we could never come to empirically. Only by revelation can we know the significance of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. So thank you. Thank you for telling us. You've given us personification and pictures here in Romans 5 because the reality is hard to grasp. And so you've painted a picture for us to help us understand. And you've told us in so many different ways throughout Scripture. Help us to believe it's true. And in believing that you've won this great victory, help us to live like it's true. Help us to live free as you have made us free. We are free from Queen Sin's dominion. Help us to live in freedom. Help us to resist temptation. Help us to overcome the power of sin. And help us to fight its impact in our world by pursuing righteousness in our own lives, in our own communities, and seeking to advocate for it in our world. So thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that far surpasses the power of sin and death, the power of grace that should dominate our lives and indeed you've told us does indeed dominate our lives. Help us to see it, help us to believe it, and help us to experience it, to feel like it's true. Thank you for being with us in the midst of our constant fight against the powers that be. Help us to stand firm, rooted and grounded in trusting our Savior Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. We celebrate with these folks who are coming to testify of what you've done in their lives and in their hearts. Help us to celebrate and rejoice with them, to encourage them, to build them up in their faith, and help us to be encouraged as well as we see public testimony of the gospel itself, the death and burial and resurrection of our Savior on display in a water tank. Help us to marvel. Help us to rejoice. Help us to celebrate rightly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.